Usually I don't set the title of the episode first, but we're going to do that and then and then work backwards. I invited Jason Ang over. Hello. Hi, Jason. You're, you're famous to this audience because you were in the Hasselblad versus Pixel video. Correct. Do you remember that? I do. <laughs> that was your Hasselblad. He was the gentleman in it. Can you send me some photos? I'll put them in show notes so people can be aware of your work and the sure, kind of... absolutely. The kind of photography that Jason does, which is great, beautiful photography. Thank you. Yeah, like work-wise, a lot of it's commercial yeah, commercial clothing, fashion, you know, anything to do with clothes on yeah. people, really. But stylistically, you know, people would people would think of it as like relatively artistic commercial Correct, work. Yeah. You know, it, it has a – it doesn't feel super commercial. Like you've kind of always stuck to having a bit of an edge to it and like the work that they're going to see anyway. I mean, we all, right. we all bury our uh, all-white studio jobs. But what you're no, best known for looks pretty cool. And so the the topic that we're going to define today by, I think, what what did I say the title was? What does it take to work as a photographer or to, to be a professional photographer, which I'm going to start at that point of this, this is a thing I kind of complain about every once in a while is that there seems to be this, people get stuck on the wording of like professional photographer. Like there is some kind of magic behind being a professional at it versus the fact that you just work as a photographer. And maybe I just get exposed to it because of YouTube. So in YouTube comments, sometimes I'll introduce a video by saying, I'm a professional photographer. And that's the context. Of you introducing. Yeah, whatever it is. And that's fair. And especially today uh, where there's so many people shooting for, whether it be for themselves or you know, for for an application or for a client, the facet of seeing so much more photography and different styles of photographers is obviously, you know, endless at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And to me, the, the key thing here is like, if you're going to be do, doing this for work, you're going to be trying to make a good chunk of your money off of doing photography. That's the kind of, that's what we mean by professionalism today. That's what we're going to be talking about. There's no like, you don't get a merit badge. You don't need a right. license. Right. It, it's just like, yeah, you do this. You do this for work. <laughs> yeah, there there is no, some big test at the end of the day that you have to take in order to get certified by yeah the board, the board, <laughs> photography board. But uh, I don't know. Do you have any opening statements before? We, well, I mean, just kind of in the footnotes that you we, you know, I mean, we kind of devised this topic a good fifteen minutes <laughs> beforehand. But uh, when I started, there was definitely sort of two uh, trains of thought. You would either you know go to school and go through the classic institution style way of getting an education or you would work for a master somebody that you admired or looked up to and and you would just go and and you would try your your hardest to work apprenticeship yeah an apprenticeship so i mean still even i think if you go to school you still try and work for somebody Hmm. just to figure out the ins and outs of what happens you know on set and daily i mean because you go to school and you'll learn you know if you go to a technical college you'll learn how how to operate a camera, how to operate the software, how to operate some lighting to some degree. Um, I mean, I know here there's a technical college and then there's obviously some DIY online uh, things that happen, of course, everywhere. But um, I went through a traditional art college and... I mean, for me, the the benefits of that was having uh, the art background. Is mm-hmm. at, at first you didn't understand why you were taking three hundred art history classes, but um, now later on in life you understand that a, a composition is a composition, whether it be a painting or a drawing or 
you know, whatever your medium is, you, you, you have to be able to talk about it and you have to be able to understand why you're doing it. So having the reference of, of history is important. And I mean, I think that, I think that you went to, to SAIT. Yeah, so you went to the art college right beside the technical college that I went to almost at the same time. I mean, I don't know what years, but within a year or two. Yeah, 2000. Um, so we were doing like, to- and my technical college wasn't about photography. It was called multimedia. So I was doing computers, like there's programming and, and you had like a that. photo class rather and than the, a exactly. yeah, photo stream. Yeah. And I could re- and I could like borrow cameras from the right. department or whatever. Right. And yeah, we had a, a similar sort of setup where there's a I mean you can take out whatever you wanted. And at the time I think um I was pretty lucky because I got caught in the crossover of film and photography. So the first year was film and then the second year was like yeah, you, you know, were there right when it's easel like monitor- the year they yeah, sold e- all the photo easel monitors and right. uh, you know Epson four thousand printers was the next uh, lab year, <laughs> yeah. but it was uh, definitely uh, I mean in your first year of an art college you'll take painting drawing ceramics and all of this stuff which is fun and it gets you know I I want I don't want to say you know your creativity flowing but mm-hmm. it's sort of cliche but it but it does because you're you're working on different things and I mean as a photographer you. You 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 generally are somewhat to a degree of a DIYer. Right. Like you 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 want something, you you have to figure it out. And if you want a background, I mean, because paper gets really old really quick if you're if you're shooting in studio. So mm-hmm. you want a texture or to make something brown or to paint a cube white or whatever whatever is sort of fits into your concept. You 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 just have to have a little bit of craft in you. I think. Well, I think this is a lot of the reason that like we're we're good people to have this conversation. Of uh, like the, the way that this will be framed by by many people is, is it worth it to go to photography school? Is right. it worth it to spend the money on right. you know tuition uh, if you plan to to work as a photographer in the long run? Right. Um, so that's like the, that's kind of the bigger context is like, and I, th- I think we should try to address that in a few different ways today right. about like when you spend money on school, spend money on gear, like investing things where you're potentially going into debt or also, let's talk about maybe when you shouldn't. And like, who is that worth it for? Who is it not? So, and like, I'll, I'll start to counter with what you were talking, and I'll just admit it on, right from the front. I, like, I often am pretty critical about going to, to art school or to doing programs like yours, but not because of you. To me, you're kind of an exception. There's always a, f- a few people in those classes, because I would go and hang out at your school. And I would like, because I was kind of jealous of the photography program and like you had all the good gear and the right, studios right, right. and stuff. And uh, so, you know, I knew a few people in it, but that like there's a few stars in the class that might have or probably would have done this anyway. You know, like you could have had this career, I, I believe, maybe, I don't know if you'd agree. Yeah, absolutely. But I think you're, the, all the people that do the best in art school are the ones that probably would have been able to do this on their own. I think it's rare that people go into art school that are like, I don't know what I want to do for work. I don't know where I want my career to go. I'll just try this for a while. And then they completely excel and create a career out of it. I think people that enter it with that might often still struggle. And, and, and I think, but I think that what you're saying right now applies to almost everything. I mean, it's because <laughs> you, could, you could be an accountant, for example, and we know a few accountants in the circle. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they're the people that are going to go out and start their own firm and, you know, have... 12 people under them and be the guy to go to for corporate taxes or whatever right. that might be. And at the end of the day, there's, there's always going to be the 10 people because I mean, I went to school with, I had a class of 14 and 12 of them were, were girls. And, um, 
Wow, that's crazy. It is, and that's it's actually the it's, it's an ongoing statistic for ACAT as far as the photography program goes. I mean, it's rare that there's more than five right. ma- males in it. And, well, for anybody listening, like to look up the schools, ACAT is the Alberta College of Art and Design, right? And State is the Southern Alberta Institute of Technology. It sure is, yeah, yeah. So this is this is all in Calgary where we're based. So. Um, but to to go back to this topic of school. Um, I would say that uh, if if you're if you're young and you're just getting out and you you know you 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 don't know a whole lot and you're you're just a, a person and you know that you love photography and you and you want to do it, um, school is going to give you the place to to create an assignment three, four, five times a week and sit down with a group of other people and critically talk about it and have somebody there as an instructor or. I mean, I mean, I just did a guest crit at the school last week, where you go in and you know you you tell these kids why 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 these these images don't work, uh, <laughs> and uh, and it's good, but that's where you go to learn, and you have that competitiveness within your class, and you have the competitive the competitiveness of seeing the you know the fourth year students um, creating this work that's better than yours, and you wanting to be there. Um, and then you have the benefits, like in my case, I had uh, graphic design and uh, visual communications was across the hall. So once a year, we would have an assignment where you would, you know, you would you would collaborate with them and, and whether it be an MEC ad or um, some sort of shoe company or whatever that project was, you, it gives you the ability to work with a, somebody who's inevitably going to be an art director. Mm-hmm. And like I said, yeah, yeah, I mean, which is great, right? And so at the end of it all, with with the art history and you know becoming friends with you know potentially three hundred people that are going to be art directors at the end of the day was was essentially how I I got started. At the end of it, uh, when I left school, um, I'd made enough relationships that people just called. It was like, oh hey, I'm over here at blah 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 communications. Can you come right. in and and show us your book, sort of thing? And that was kind of how. I mean, it started for me, and I felt I felt like I built those relationships in school. But also, you know, as you were saying, uh, there were other people that just didn't build those relationships in school because they 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 went to school and they did the assignments, but they didn't do anything extra. Right. And as a freelancer or somebody who creates, you have to kind of always be making something. And do, do you have a sense of the people that were in your class? How like what what percent? I mean, it wasn't a big class. What percentage? What percent of them? ended up working professionally professionally and uh, and at what percent ended up doing something different there are exactly i couldn't say that about my class just to clarify I, yeah I, I didn't follow up enough of them to right know, right so. right you knew there was a guy named bobby and that's about <laughs> yeah, it yeah yeah i would say that there's four people that i graduate with that are that right. are doing things yeah and so here's how I'll, I'll try to sum something up and you can tell me where i'm wrong with it the way i would suggest other people think about it is that if you already have a feeling that you could be pretty good at this, you're like, I, I see other photographers my age and I, or people interested in photography. I see what they're doing and I actually could be competitive with them. Like I'm, I'm doing about as good work as, as anyone else I know. And I think I can make a go at this. I think it's reasonable to expect. I'm passionate about it. I read about it in my off time. I shoot in my off time. Like I do this in my spare time then going to school will probably hit a bit of a fast forward button for you. You'll learn a bunch of certain things way faster, make a bunch of contacts that are really challenging to make out in the big world, just like by shaking hands. And there's just certain things that you'll 
get you know a direct injection into your veins of photography. If you're, this is back to what I said. I mean, I really think people that like, if you're not sure what you want to do and you think maybe it could be photography, go take business classes, take web design classes, take uh, entrepreneurship, take accounting and go shoot on your own time and learn it at home. But don't just start spending your money on art school because that will drain you quickly. And you, I mean, what you just said of your class, there's a 50% chance this won't end up being your career. Right. And the photography stuff won't be applicable. The only is thing, that, is that bad advice? N- well, I mean, it's pretty conservative advice. Like I'm telling a lot of people, right. Don't do it. And I think that it, I think that it just depends on the type of person you are, because like you say, I think that, you know, you, your program, was it two years or it was two years, it was yeah. two years. And I mean, when you get out of school, you, you think that you know everything. And then two years later, you still think that you know everything. Yeah. And then four years after that, you're like, I know nothing. Yeah. Um, and that's when the sort of light goes on. So I feel like, I feel like, you know, the whole idea of four years, it will probably take most people that long to figure out whatever <laughs> it is they're going to do in yeah. that time period anyway, whether it be through school or taking classes or, you know, lynda.com or whatever mm-hmm. your avenue for learning is, it's it's going to take you a while to figure it out. I mean, you can learn all of this stuff. And then when you step on set with a real photographer and you you realize that there's set etiquette and, and craft services and, and people doing other things, you know, that's when, you, when you're like, oh, okay, this is a whole world that I never sort of explored. So when it comes down to it, I mean, really the the best education is to is to find somebody that that you like that that their ideals and work align with what you see yourself doing. Yeah, that's what I could get a hundred percent behind. And what I wish I had done more of is assisting, just right. working with people that are, are more experienced than me. I dabbled in it a bit, and I've said this before on the podcast, but in case anybody hasn't listened, I didn't do photography right out of school. I was working at a photo company. I stock photo doing web design, and that got me shooting. So I had a long time to kind of learn as I had a design job, and then I could sell my photos as stock. And like, So I just learned by doing it over and over again, but still making money at a normal job. Just a little context. But because of that, I skipped the step of of assisting or working with bigger photographers for the most part. Uh, I, I didn't spend a, a lot of time on set with other people. But when I did, yeah, it was very, very helpful. And even now, I'm in this world where I want to learn more about real cinema production. I want to get better at video production and you know, kind of work the way that the big boys do. And it's hard to learn those lessons on your own. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're not going to get invited onto a big set when you're doing everything as a you know, one or two person production. Yeah, and that's one of those scenarios where you really have to, you know, find out who's coming to town or or reach out to your contacts abroad and say, hey, you know, um, I, how can I get myself onto yeah. one of these sets or whatever it is. There's always a way in, you know. Because the stuff that you'll not be learning, because it, it won't be obvious at first. When you watch tutorials, you'll see all this stuff of like people, here's how your camera works and here's how to get good composition. Here's how to use Lightroom. But you'll you, there's so many subtleties that become really important. They, they're not so subtle later about just like, here's why you always need sandbags on your stands. Right. Like, yeah. Just sort of like basic things mm-hmm. of making things, like lubricating the, the process, yeah. like making them move forward and not getting <laughs> hung up and stuck on some stupid problem that on a traditionally run set, like that's a solved problem. You don't have to figure it out for right. yourself. But if you haven't been exposed to it, you you do have to. Right. And that's that also goes with, you know, that's an experience thing. I mean, as an assistant, 
you lay in the background and you're folding cords and you're setting up <laughs> yeah, lights yeah. and you're going to get coffee and uh, you're moving Apple boxes around or whatever needs to be done. I mean, throwing snow or turning on a fan. I mean, these are all the things that you get to experience uh, from 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 twenty five feet away. Throwing snow sounds like such a random. Yeah, no, that. but I've, I mean, I've been on yeah, a, yeah. a hundred. I've thrown. You're a talking lot about of, throwing fake snow, right? Throwing fake snow, yeah, yeah uh, which is generally some sort of rice product that hits a fan. Oh, by the way, uh, speaking of sandbags on stands, I totally let a stand like drop hard the other day. Oof. It was high up. Right? Was it on a brand new floor? No, it kind of kind of nicked my laptop a little. Oof. Those those are never good. But feelings. Was, I had two I had two of the smaller sandbags on it. it. Basically, everything was in the right place, but it was the small. I had the smaller sandbags, and I kind of didn't account for the fact that like because they're not the heavier ones, it doesn't matter that you have two because that only adds up to the weight of one. Right. And my stand was pretty high, I, so I instantly went out and bought two heavy sandbags. Right. 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 And, yeah. Uh, that, no, there's like that was, four on that. That's stand, a, that. But, but that's a lesson learned, right? Oh, yeah. So, but I shouldn't be learning it now. Come right, on. How right, long ago should I figure right. this out? Well, I dropped, I dropped a laptop a month ago because of an unzipped bag. And, you know, I have an assistant that's constantly telling me, Hey, zip up your stuff, zip up your stuff. And I'm like, you know, I'm carrying it square, <laughs> but then I had to get my keys and something else is in my hand. The bag goes at an angle, the laptop drops out. I've mostly almost done it a lot. I haven't had many where it, it really happened. But uh, what just, were we talking about? Just to ste- <laughs> just to step back a second here and talk of what we were talking about being an assistant. The thing about doing anything from scratch is that it takes a long time. Now, whether you're learning design or photography, you're going to do it once, and it's going to be painstaking to get it right the first time. And then when you do get it right, the second time takes half half as long, mm-hmm. and the third time takes half as long. And then after you've done it a thousand times. You have become, you know, at one with whatever that medium you're, or or task you are set out to to do is to, to complete that task. Yeah. And um, when you first step in front of a live subject, whether it be a model or you're doing a portrait for an editorial or something like that, that's when you really realize that you're where your communication skills. Like, I mean, you have to set up some sort of rapport with this person that you're shooting or subject or whatever clients. You name it. And becoming an assistant first allows you to see how people interact. And then people will interact with you sort of on those sets. And the more and more you become comfortable on set, um, the better you will do in the long haul because you, you're used to it at that point. And I, I have such an important assistant tip. If you're, you're going to go be an assistant, please, please, please just go and be an assistant. Don't be a future photographer when you're on that set. Right. Like when you're there to work with the photographer whose job this is, you are there for them and you're not there to mingle. Yeah. To develop your career. Right. You're not there to show people your Instagram or hand out your business card or talk about what it is you're doing. Yeah. And I mean, I found that a challenge in, in times that we're looking for people to work with us that it's like, if it is really transparent that like what you're aiming for is to just have my job, that creates like some conflict. It even though like there's that's kind of how it works. Like you also want to be Absolutely. a photographer. Like we all know, we all, we understand that's the situation, but it shouldn't it shouldn't feel competitive. And it's really easy to get like that if if the assistant or the younger person is not not thinking about it. Right, right, right. And that's also something. To, there's something to be said. I mean, even when I was going to school, I took three assisting workshops in Toronto. I did an assisting workshop at. Uh, 
uh, PDN holds in New York every year, uh, the Photo Expo. And um, that is something worth going to. You pay your set price and then you you can pick from like 10 different workshops that you'll take. So even though I was going to school, I was also out trying to work for people on the weekends. And, you know, during the week, if somebody big came into town, I would go to an instructor and say, hey, like, blah, blah, blah is here from Wallpaper Magazine. um, And I can work for this person for three days. And it's it's my my dream job. So please let me do it. Mm -hmm. And and they would. People are pretty understanding that way. But you know there's there's a, there's so many facets for learning and workshops is definitely something that I did and would recommend as well because it's you know 200 bucks for you know a day or a weekend in a bigger city under a bigger photographer make it a trip and go and go somewhere bigger and learn from some people that are outside of your comfort zone and perspective because you'll learn things um if you're from a smaller market like we are. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no rental houses here. You can't just walk in and be like, I need, you know, 18 pro photo heads. Well, there, there is a rental house. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There is a, uh, a camera store. But, you you know, I yeah. mean, I... I, it's, I not, it's not a big market, yeah. I get contacted about 15 times a year for gear for other photographers that are coming to town that because we just don't, we can't supply what they have, yeah. you know, in, in what they want or what they're used to. And that's a, a, a pretty common scenario. So... For me to step out and go at an, at an earlier age to say, "Hey, this is what a real rental house looks like in New York, in in New York or in Toronto, or this is mm-hmm. what a stage looks like in Los Angeles." Mm-hmm. I mean, get yourself onto a set somewhere else, and uh, you'll you're, you, it'll blow your mind and 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 humble you. And that's like these are these are good things because you, oh, yeah. you want to start at the top. I mean, I, I feel like if you're going to do anything you aim as high as possible and find that person that's going to help you achieve that. I want to close out the education section with some encouragement, some encouraging words for people that if you're, lo- if you're considering school, but it really seems like a stretch for you, financially especially, you don't have to. You really don't have to do any schooling. There's many arguments for it, but I'm just saying that like, if, it's, if, you, if, if the options for you are like, you know, my, my parents will only pay for my school if I go do something more traditional. Uh, so, you know, Anya, my wife, is, took accounting and still ended up with a job as a photographer. And it's not an uncommon story. Right. So either doing some other type of schooling or, or not at all, for some reason, it's not an option for you. You can have this career, so don't get too discouraged. I am going to counter that statement just a tiny sure. bit by saying that, um, I mean, I went, I paid for most of it by working, but then uh, the last two years I ran out of money. I got a student loan. It wasn't offensive. Maybe I took out 16000 in those two years and I did well enough that I only had to pay six of that 16000 back. Mm-hmm. So it was like really nothing. It was like what most people would consider to be, you know, five car payments these days. So um, as a Canadian, uh, the government will help you and they are pretty good about it. Oh, I think government helped. That sounds great. Uh, Yeah. And for me, same thing that my, in the terms of that, my schooling was relatively affordable. Like I didn't have to, it just didn't cost that much. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, traditionally it's the same price as university. You'll pay, you know, a couple thousand dollars a semester supplies. And then you have to take into consideration Mm -hmm. that 50 hours of your week, you can't work. So uh, you've got some job on the weekend, but uh, we live in a place where that's possible. Yeah. Well, the next thing I wrote down here, and you know, I'll come up with more ideas if you want. I, I I I wrote it down as required skills. Like here's sort of here's what it takes to actually get jobs. Here are things you should probably be good at. I didn't really have ideas here. There, I, I actually I, I'll start it with a complaint. 
and we can reframe that if we want, that there's, there's definitely photographers I've seen work that will come into a situation unaware of how to solve the problems that they're faced with. That's a, that's a big part of being a quote-unquote professional to me, is that whatever it is you walk into, you're like, I know how to make this work. I know how to make this as good as the client expects it to be. Right. Because if you only know how to shoot in that one certain way that you've been doing. Yeah, that has always been comfortable and it's always been presented to you. So maybe that's shooting on white in a studio, or maybe it's the opposite in shooting all natural light. Whatever it is, you're only used to one way and then you're presented with yeah, the opposite. A dark room. Yeah. You gotta you you have to be able to solve those problems to the client's expectation. Absolutely. So this goes back to this goes back to assisting. And if what you're doing is you know, if if you find yourself stuck in a dark room, I mean, uh, <laughs> no, but actually, and yeah. you've got three people that you've got to make look good, you've, you know, go technical here for a second, but you've maxed out your ISO and you've and you're at f two and you've got to get three people sharp and you've got these <laughs> lights, but you've never ever yeah. lit a room. Uh, you know what do you do? And that's when you start sweating bullets. And when you start sweating bullets is when you freak out. And when you freak out is when you know things that really don't go well. Yeah, you need to be able to switch things up and figure out how to move on very quickly in these scenarios. And that just is is going to come with experience. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm not going to speak to lighting here because we're not talking about a specific scenario. But. No, but lighting is a hard thing. It's one of the things that, you know, can sort of separates the, well, I was going to say men from the boys, but the girls from the women, uh, right. you know, separates the, you. the, the youth from the, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, it's like, it's one of the, it is one of the harder things right. that takes more experience to, you have to be presented with all these different right. struggles before you start learning how to solve them. You can't just know them all in your one Linda course. Not, right. Not uh, absolutely. And that's, that's the thing about, um, that's the thing about a technical college that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily learn right, either. It's like, cause you're going to get gear and they're going to tell you to go do something, but they're not going to be like, Hey, yes. uh, you know, so the thing you do is what you're comfortable with. You'll right. go do what's right, right, easy right. to make look good. And I feel like as a professional photographer, um, you know, if you've, if you've gotten something that you've taken on and you know, it might be out of your reach, but you've got this mindset of, I'm going to fake it till I make it, you know, scout it, pre-light it. Get there, get in as early as you can, or even go the day before, because that 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 could be your career on the line. And and as they've they, they used to say when I went to school, you're only as good as your last shoot. And and that you know, I mean, today things happen so quickly, and you're you know what you did last week isn't generally remembered for another couple <laughs> yeah. weeks. Uh, so that's a good thing. Well, and especially <laughs> if you don't uh, post any of the things you did last week, that you, the the one that you shit that's, the bed. That's then, true. Uh, that's true. <laughs> But uh, on that note, I mean, I, I think it's it's experience. I mean, you you know, you say that that is an annoyance, but um, of course, it's one of those things you just have to get in there and and practice. Well, let's do some details. What are some times that you've walked into a room and been like, oh wait, I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. Ooh, that's a tough one. I mean, I definitely or even now, like, what's a, what's the thing that when you see it, you're like, oh, this is this is gonna be a challenge. Well. Like I was saying, I mean, uh, last month I was I was shooting some downtown. I was shooting some uh, some some portraits downtown, and um, you you can often end up with a mixed bag of lighting, where you've got some sort of weird high pressure sodiums in a building built in the '90s, and they're yellow. You've got blue coming in from the outside. Because that's what are we looking at a uh, like a tight, okay. a tight portrait? Is this like no? Let's close? let's call it a full length. Okay, so you can see the everything. environment. You can, you can see, see the walls in the background. Yeah, you yeah. can see everything. 
So here you are. Um, you've got to show, let's say, the three-quarter angle of a room that is all glass. So your person is backlit. Your light from the top is yellow. And so you automatically you've got some blue and yellow going on, and you've got to fill this somehow to mm-hmm. in order to make this person come alive. Right. Do you like, do you split the difference at forty four hundred, or do you uh, go all daylight, or do you go all right, tungsten? right, right? Yeah. So in that um, in that scenario, um, you know, right off the bat, I knew I had to. I used a cutter and and took out the top light, which was the yellow, and then filled um, with blue, but something that I filled with daylight. But it was slightly warmer, so that at the end, the only thing that I had to readjust was the actual background right. itself. So the, the tungsten lights, the warmer lights, are still hitting the yeah. They're still around, but they're not creating that hot spot on the, on, on the, the person's subject. forehead, for example. So you cut that out, and then you fill accordingly. What do you use to cut it? Like what did you? I use a cutter. So like um, meaning a, like a flag mounted on a yeah assistant? yeah uh, well a, uh, a flag mounted on an assistant. Oh, okay, <laughs> um, that works. Uh, but yeah, I mean, and that and this is a funny thing too because going back to like you know what people do in cinema, um, I feel like cinema rules have never changed. I mean, all of these things have been around forever: cutters and flags and bounce and scrims and you know you step on a on a film set and people are yelling, get me a, a quarter wire and, you know, a three quarter CTO. And you're like, what? Uh, but uh, those are, those are, those, that's also another important thing is I think to learn terminology. So when you mm-hmm. go somewhere and you ask for something or somebody shows up, you know, if you're nowadays, it, it's, it's quite a common scenario to have a, a film being set um, at the same time as doing stills. So to know the the terminology between the two sets, and to be able to play nice mm-hmm. with, you know, and be able to converse um, intellectually with yeah. with the topic or the task at hand to, to problem solve that quickly. Well, and there's the challenge if you're doing it all by yourself, you're only going to become familiar with the stuff that you bought. And you only bought it because you saw a tutorial on YouTube about it. But it's just one of a hundred different ways to solve that same problem. So, uh, yeah, you can, I still feel limited by that. I'm like... I want to work with bigger lighting. You know, I've been used to soft boxes all my life because that's kind of the more photography way of softening Correct. light. And cinema is much more about a frame, like a metal frame, and you tie a piece of diffusion to it. Right. And then you stack a few of those and put them in, you know. Absolutely. And uh, it, it's it's just a different approach. But not having bought those when I was getting started, I need to relearn it in a different way now. And since I'm not going on bigger sets because I just, I don't have time to assist. I have right. I have jobs to do. Yeah. It's, it, there's sort of that challenge of like, how do I learn it without buying it all? Right. Or without, uh, you know, going and doing some free assisting work basically. So, but on that note, those are things that I think are timeless. Like you can buy a lens and five years down the road, that lens can fall out of sharpness. You can buy a C-stand uh, from Matthews and that C-stand, will ne- you will own that C-stand for the rest of your life. You're buying one piece of bulletproof gear. If you're getting, like uh, Tyler and I were talking about the difference between cinema and photography gear, you know, yesterday and flags, um, whether you're using foam core or, you know, ma- proper Matthews roadie flags or cutters or whatever it is you're using, if you invest in in those things a little bit earlier, um, you will have those forever. Yeah. And those, when you walk onto a real set, the ones that they're using are like thirty years old. They're like falling apart. Right, 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 and, and still getting used every day. Yeah, right. And so that's the, there's something to be said about um, a solid piece of you know alu- aluminum from Matthews that's mm-hmm. 
that's probably been in a hundred different movie trucks and and you know you probably pick one up secondhand but butterflies silks um, flags those are things that you'll never regret buying because they'll use them you'll use them just even as an environmental portraitist those are things that will never ever go out of style mm-hmm. cameras will change every six months but flags have been you know be, been being used in Hollywood since 1950 and and on that note I mean you know, I mean, I have a classic set of Mole Richardsons that I paid fifty dollars for, and I did my first two years of photography with with classic moles, and they're one and two Ks, and yeah. and you can buy them for nothing. Do you basically do you still mostly shoot strobe? I I prefer con- continuous light, just because of depth of field and movement. Prefer, but what do you end up doing most often lately? Oh, okay. So I, cause I feel like there is more of a trend. More photographers are getting into continuous. Right. So I definitely am. Right. So I have definitely always been a fan of continuous, but not until recently has it been viable to go on location with continuous light until yeah. try to fight the sun with a, yeah with a with a two K head. You can't even do it. You need to actually like a ten K to fight the sun in in film terms. But. Uh, you know now with the with the invention and the accessibility of the color temperature adjustable LEDs it's 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 so much more easy and accessible and with cameras being i mean you can go to 3000 in most cases and get something that's usable which is crazy i mean it's not crazy but it's just a standard i mean <clears throat> the gear is good now it's like the the playing field is is leveled and you you know you can get cheaper you know lights for well, th- that is the last step that we're still missing is really high power uh, that can be run off of house power. So right. You don't need a generator, but you can start getting up into the like four, eight, 12K. Right. We're, that's still the la- kind of the last thing where you get like superpower. But I don't, e- I don't even think that you need that. I mean, I've, I've seen, I mean, with the, it seems to be to me what the standard now is like the the re sky panels Mm -hmm. and i'm not sure what they're worth and i've never had one in my hand yeah sure there's probably a lot but i mean they it's it's what it's what people in the big world use it seems like it's the standard for well so in the i think i recommended this recently but i've been listening to cinematography podcast a lot lately wandering tp podcast and something he'd been talking about a few times that stuck with me and now i believe is true is a lot of what gives you the like big budget look look of like an expensive movie is big lights far away mm-hmm. and that's what that's like a lot of the struggle when you're doing indie you're like i got these sky panels and i got these great led panels and i got tubes and i got you know all these all these uh, practical-ish light sources that i can put right over my subject but it still feels lit it still feels unnatural and fake and a lot of that like you know selling daylight as real daylight is you just need a crazy powerful light that's like 50 feet away or, you know, or or out the window or, you know, like. But then I think that that's also a mentality of a photographer. And like Mm -hmm. we were talking about yesterday, I mean, I believe that it's always more important to light the room before you light your subject. And if you do that and then work your subject in, because a person is the easy, they're the smallest thing. And I mean, in cinema terms, you're generally a lot wider than you are in photography. You're storytelling and you, you need the environment. I mean, in how many cases is it a tight portrait um, at three quarters in, mm-hmm. in cinema? Probably not very often. You know, that's not what the story is. The story is what, what they're doing with their hands or where they're walking or what they're going to. I mean, I don't know. I've just been a big believer that you light the room and not the person. Right. Well, in, in, in cinema terms, it's usually also that you're going to light your wide, shoot your establishing wider shot 
uh, and, then and, then you, and then you pull in and when you pull in, then you can like sweeten it a bit and you, that's when you add a bit of softness and you, you know, you make it exactly the way you wish it could have been in the wide. Right. Um, and unfortunately in photography, I mean, that's an important difference is that we have the challenge of like, it has to look good in one frame because you're not going to have the wide and the close up, So you got to get right. it all. And so like a challenge I run into really often is that I, in, in fashion stuff, especially a lot of full length, you know, right. head to toe. And once you see people's feet, now you can't have the lighting change as it hits the floor. Uh, and so, yeah, again, yesterday we were talking about this. Like, so, so what do you do? How do you get the same softness, not only on the person, but falling away from them on the ground in the distance? Because if you've got a beauty dish or a grid or something that creates any kind of like, sharper, harsher, yeah, like a shaped light, like a cone of light, that's easier to make look good if you're on a three quarters or a close up or anything where you don't see the bottom and where it hits the ground. Cause otherwise if it hits the ground, you it see falls that off. there's basically like kind of a circle around them. The, the illusion is broken of this being anything natural at all. all of a sudden right. It's, and that's then that once again, that's a, that's just a large light source too. Right. Because I mean, if you have something that's 12 feet and you're shooting a light through uh, a 12 foot, uh, the, 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 the size of your light now becomes almost 12 feet. I mean, of course there's still fall off and it doesn't, become this perfect 12 foot square but you're you're lighting a larger scene for you know for the application of having a full length this episode is brought to you by me Tyler Stallman uh I don't know if it's a thing where you can sponsor your own podcast but I'm gonna do it anyway and I have a good reason because I've spent a long time working on some Lightroom presets that I think you're gonna enjoy um Lightroom presets are a thing that are to be honest, relatively easy to make. All it takes is moving some sliders around and you can just create your own preset. I have spent some time refining some specific presets that I've been using for years. So pretty much all of our commercial work, all of the work on Anya's blog is all run through this relatively small set of about five presets, but they've just proven themselves to be incredibly useful. I have bought other people's presets. I've used a lot of different things, but I've packaged up the few that I come back to over and over again that I know are going to work well for you. So if you're interested in these presets, you can go to stallman.com slash presets and download them. They're $20. And uh, I mean, really, you can think of it a way as supporting the show because there's no sponsor this week. And things like this are a great way to support your local creator. But wait, there is more. As you probably already know, presets are kind of useless if you don't actually know how to operate Lightroom and how to manipulate your image to be what you want. So if you apply a preset, but the blues start going in a crazy direction or your saturation feels way off and you don't know what to do, the presets aren't going to help you. Like I can't make a bunch more presets to preset your way out of not knowing how Lightroom works. So I've created a half-hour tutorial and included it in that bundle, which goes into incredible detail about all the little things I do when I'm correcting a batch of images. So if you feel like you can't afford these presets, no pressure, because I'm going to keep putting out free content that hopefully helps you a lot in your photography, but it's a great way to support the show if you can. So thanks to stallman.com slash presets for supporting the show. So if somebody is about to try to pursue a photo career without going to school, correct? what do you think they should Google? Like, what, what should they be trying to learn right now? What are some uh, things? I mean, so one you started talking about is light fall off. Right. You know, like, how does light change as it gets further away? And, you know, I don't think that that's something that you should Google. I think that you need to practically put lights in your hand mm -hmm. and get behind the subject and figure out what it does because you can Google all you want, but then... 
if you're on set and uh, you go to do something and it's just not working out yeah, because the video, the video wasn't right. I mean, yeah, but this, keep in mind as well that like you don't need professional lights to do that. Like right. these experiments, like you can use flashlights, you can use absolutely your phone. You, you can know, go to Home Depot move lights around. and buy yeah. a $20 floodlight and have that be your learning curve for a year if you yeah. wanted to. Hang bed sheets in front of it. Right. And as far don't as let them light on fire. As far as, you know, color balance and all of that stuff goes, for $15, you could probably put an accurate set of gels in your kit mm-hmm. and um, change the color temperature of anything for just a matter of pennies, really. Yeah. So you don't have to go out and buy the latest and greatest, you know, LED sky panel, RE4000, you know, whatever it is mm-hmm. at, at this moment. You, you can learn from essentially, you know, any light source. Things you probably can learn online are, it's funny because we almost skip over things like exposure, composi- composition. Right. I mean, because those sort of become, like we, when we have conversations, we take it for granted. Right. Because it's sort of so base level. Absolutely. You just already have to... Well, and that, that's, that that's the thing too, is that when, the more you shoot, the more your camera becomes your right hand. And I mean, like, but when I, I'm a Sony shooter now, but when I had left Canon, I mean, I could operate that thing with, you know, with my eyes closed. You knew where everything but was. But now that you're on Sony, you struggle constantly? Yeah, I struggle constantly. I've got a manual. <laughs> yeah. I read it on planes. <laughs> is it true? You uh, close down the set uh, and you're like, hold on, everybody. i got to watch some tutorials. Why is my nose moving the focus every time it touches the screen? <laughs> uh but yeah, th- these are these are first world problems. I feel like for what we're talking about right now, if you're just getting into this, I mean, learn your camera, use it as much yeah. as you can, put put as many frames that count through it as you can. Totally. Oh yeah, yeah. just spending time, and I, I think also just like shoot around your house, like spend time shooting stuff that doesn't count as well, where you're just like, how do I really quickly make this image brighter in the ways that I want to? It's like. Uh, okay, but what if I want to keep the depth of field the same? Then I need to do X, Y, and Z. What if I want to control the noise? Like what? Just set some goals, yeah, and absolutely. then just go and walk around your house shooting cups and cats and chairs and uh, make it look good. Probably one Ish. of the one of the better. It's not look good. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> one of the better things. Uh, one of the better experiments that I had uh, for myself was tracking, and I mean, it, you'd be surprised at how many cameras didn't focus accurately until recent times. And I mean, I feel like in the last year, we've been really lucky with gear that just works all the time. You could be on a, 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 taking a portrait of someone and still say, hey, let's you know have them run across the street. And uh, that becomes a whole nother ball of wax at a long focal length with... With with camera movement, so you um, yeah. you, you know these are these are tests that you have to give yourself. It's like, can I track somebody walking across the street quickly and move with them? And you know, what sort of shutter speed and ISO should I be at? And what when does the file degrade? A, yeah, a good one is like, what's my base shutter speed? For absolutely for these kinds. Actually, all of them. What's my base shutter speed for these situations? What's my base ISO and what's my base aperture? It's like I need it to be sharp. And you know, sort of throw some of mine out there of like, if it needs to be really sh- like sharp, sharp, try to stick around five point six, right. maybe down to four. If you know, if it's blurry background, a lot of the time I do two point eight. I don't go down to one point four very often. Uh, in terms of ISO, my the highest I try to go is sixteen hundred. On this is on five D Mark IV, similar on A seven three. It's you, you can go past that and still use it, but I try not to because you start. What's, to, what's your say, ISO? Sixteen hundred. Right. You. I've gotten away with a couple thousand for sure. Uh, yeah. The two thousand mark I've used 
a couple of times, definitely. But I mean, it depends on your application. Yeah, I've used, you 30, to, I've used 3200. Yeah, it's exactly. What's it for? Right. So if you're just if you're just making a post for yourself, or this is something that's going to be a, a a banner on a website, then you know you probably don't have to worry about that. But if you're going over 20 inches and then you're going to start to see the degradation of the file, then that's when you have to be concerned, and that's when you have to know those limits of yep. what what you can do. Do you have to add lights or you know, that's that's an experience thing, once yeah. again. Then in terms of shutter speed, my catch-all number, I try to stick around 250. A lot of people, like this, the rule of thumb is always uh, the inverse, how do you describe it? The inverse ratio of your focal length. So you're shooting at uh, 50 millimeters, you try to shoot at least at 1 50th of a second. I find that to be too slow. Because like life does, life moves faster than that. Most people move faster than a 50th of a second. So you're going to get a lot of blur. Right. So regardless of the focal length, I try to stick to 200, 250, or if there's real movement, like 400, 600. But it, 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 that, that's also, I feel like this is one of those things where people say to you that like, you know, like the, the, whether you like this picture or not is subjective. I don't find things like that subjective. I think what we're talking about right now is subjective. Like, because I personally, I don't mind a, a foot or a hand that, that, you know, that slightly falls out of focus right. because there's some movement. Then that tells me it's real. Yeah. I, I prefer stuff like that because we live right now in a time where everything is so sharp all the time that when you do see that little bit of movement that works and you capture it and mm-hmm. you've nailed that. I mean, but then that, that once again is like, but also make sure you discuss this with your client ahead of time. Yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. And you have to know what that threshold is of too much or not yeah. enough. Okay. What one, one quick half a second back step. If you have to do something in studio and it's 50 looks, you don't have time. Flash is probably going to be your friend. You need it to be consistent throughout and not to say that you can't do that with continuous light, but you just have all of the power at your fingertips with flashes and you control, you know, you don't have to worry about, oh, well, am I going to get, you know, a 200th of a second at F8 or whatever? You just have that power. So, yeah. you know. For yeah, when you need something super, sh- when you need to shoot at F8, try doing that on continuous. Right. Like, I right. don't have those lights. Yeah, it's, it's not going to happen. Yeah. So um, if I'm doing something that requires, you know, 50 or 100 shots or something like that, um, which, you know, is not creatively ideal, but uh, it happens. Um, you, somebody's got a product and you need to capture it. These are things that are going to pay you and you're going to need strobes to do it. Uh, I, that's just my thoughts on that. Do, would you concur? Or? Yeah. I, if you're only going to have one light kit as a photographer, you should probably start with strobes. Yeah. And they're, they're, they're inexpensive now. You don't have to break the bank with yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. You spend less money and you get more out of it. Whereas for continuous, you got you to put some money in and even then you got to put more money in because right. you didn't buy enough yet. Yeah, Absolutely. Okay, but that, I mean, the, gear. That, that, that is gear. Yeah. Uh, we're starting with it. So uh, maybe in terms, we could start, instead of starting with cameras, we could start with lighting because we we're just talking about it. Mm. What's like the minimum kit that people need to get started with? And not brands necessarily or exactly yeah. what okay. it is, but yeah. what, do you, what do you need? I mean, let's just assume that everybody's going to Google and do a little bit of homework on the product that they are buying. One, make sure that it's serviceable. Two, make sure that it's got some sort of a warranty. And uh, three, make sure that more than one place carry it. So you're not just buying something that um, if that one store goes out of business, uh, you're sort of hooped. Mm-hmm. I mean, if possible. Yeah. Of I mean, course, if you're from a smaller market and there's only one place that sells this thing and it's what you want and you've seen it, but find somebody that's got it, look at reviews, put it in your hand. It's the same advice for cameras. What, what feels good to you? Is this easy to use? Yeah. Does it yeah. work? I mean, there are cheap brands that aren't... No name, absolutely. Um, so you don't you don't have to spend a lot, but they should be 
known or reputable. So some that come to mind quickly are like Godox has been picking up a lot of steam right. lately, Alien B. Right. Even something like Ellen Chrome has a lower end that's not break the bank. I mean, I think you can get a double light kit for $700. But what, uh, what about continuous lights? Um, Especially so, in a more affordable range. What's the, what's the company? Aperture. No, even cheaper than that. What, what is the... Godox? Look? Yeah, Godox. I have um, a couple sets of the, you know... Oh, you got those. 300 yeah. LED panels or whatever they are. Yeah. You can adjust them. They take batteries. They're great for location. They're great for filling. Um, you may you may run into, into trouble with color temperature because, of course, nothing ever reaches the range that you need it to. But um, as a rule of thumb, for the price that you'll pay for them, they're pretty cheap and... You know, anybody can really afford them. Yeah, Godox doesn't quite fall in the well. Their um, their continuous stuff, I think, doesn't fall in that range of things that will last you forever. You're probably going to need to replace it at some point. So far, Aperture seems like a better bet. Um, still, a, a good budget price, like much cheaper than what came before, but not not cheap. Uh, I would generally though recommend for continuous looking for things that are like single source. Being, Absolutely. being more useful than panels. Panels are more limited. Right. And so on that note, like I just said, um, or said before in the past, I mean, you can literally pick up a one or 2K Mole Richardson that you can plug into mm-hmm. any household outlet for probably 50 or $75 yeah. and a set of gels for 3 or $4. Or, or uh, Lowell's. Yeah, are, Lowell's. Yeah. Lowell's. Those creator kits are probably uh, around there for nothing. W-E-L-E-L. Uh, I mean, I'll put some links in the show notes, but... Yeah, we we still have some of those that well we were using till recently till uh, all the bulbs burnt out and I haven't replaced them. Right, yet, and then they be, they become expensive because the thing about hot lights is that the bulbs are often fifteen or twenty five dollars or thirty or whatever that number is. And if you need five of them and a, and a backup, you could be into a set of bulbs for three hundred dollars for a set of four lights. What about cameras? And not specifically which camera should you buy because we don't right. follow every camera in the universe. Right. But what what, do you, what should you be looking for? Like if you're charging people money for your photos, I think that the most important thing because right now all of the sensors are so good is focusing megapixels. Okay. Me, me, yeah, <laughs> megapixels, at least a hundred, um, and something that'll do three captures at once. <laughs> no, yeah. um, I don't think megapixels is as important now. Twenty twenty megapixels yeah, to like twenty five is has become the standard, and everything yeah. is that. And I mean, it to me, it's a burden when it's more like we had the A7R2 for a couple of years and it was primarily our video camera. But when it became, when we would use it for stills, the size of the files was annoying. It was just so much memory, like such a memory hog, slower in Lightroom, slower to download. I'm like, I don't need, I don't need this for anything. I never need. And, and, that I, big and I currently am on a 40 megapixel camera and, and I just have to be ruthless with my edits mm-hmm. and get rid of what I'm not using. But that, that information I find does save you in ISO situations as well. If you need to crop into something, I mean, if you've got double the resolution, you also have yeah, double the I mean, size, you know, blah, another, blah, bleah, blah. Yeah, if you need it, you need, then yeah. you need it. But, at, at, this point in the, at this point in the game, everything is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, but having something that focuses accurately and focuses where you want it to and tracks accurately is probably the most important thing in a camera that I can think of. Well, this actually be a good time to bring in. I wanted to, I, I did ask Twitter for some questions. So I'm going to start sprinkling them in here because one of them directly relates to this. Uh, and this was from Steve Brazil and... Uh, the way he, I'm going to rephrase it, but but basically that a lot of this depends on what it is that you're aiming to do, whether you're doing photography, uh, sorry, commercial photography or weddings or still life or live music, you're going to have really different requirements. Now, 
especially in terms of buying a camera. So I'd say that, you know, you kind of need more in different directions depending on, like there's an event direction and there is a megapixel direction. So if you're just shooting like, I think it's, if there's a lot of stuff that's in studio where you need the least because you've got a lot of light. So things are sharp. Um, so say for example, uh, something you were shooting the other day of like fashion in studio with, um, lots of, you can use your strobes. Everything's perfectly well lit. You don't need high ISO. Um, your lens is going to be at its sharpest. So even if you blew it up, it would be fine. Like you're, you've got maximum quality. You can have a pretty mediocre camera for that. You don't need to focus super fast because things aren't moving around. Um, Pretty much any cameras, honestly. Absolutely, you can go to you can go situation. to Costco and probably um, <laughs> yeah. pick up a Canon kit for five hundred and call it. Yeah, uh, it'd be call fun. it call it done. Um, when you start needing more, like just kind of requiring it in the event world, you'll you're going to start needing better autofocus, faster uh, frame rate, like photos per second. Um, and then, Ian, what what do you need more megapixels for these days? Landscapes. <laughs> landscapes no i mean i i feel like it's just a safety thing because i i, I did come from a you know i had a, a hasselblad and uh, when we became hassle free as somebody made a joke the <laughs> other day yeah that's that's oh, on she just said honey, hello. that was great um you know, would you, I, I came from a 50 megapixel camera, 40, uh, and it just be, be having the detail and the flexibility to crop and to pull in. Um, right now, I find myself in a time period where, you know, I, I want to do some awkward crops, but I also don't want to lose the formal composition that I'm used to. So uh, I just wanted the flexibility to play with stuff. And I guess for artwork as well, I mean, for on a personal level, you know, I try and shoot for myself yeah. as much as possible. You do print some big... Yeah, pieces I, I, that hang sometimes. Which yeah, we don't do absolutely. So I mean, on that note, I just you know it was what was available. The the at the time I would have bought an A seven Mark three or four or whatever mm-hmm. um, had it been out, but they had just released the A seven R three and it did everything that I needed to, and I wasn't going back to Canon. So there it was. But um, on to what the the, the question was. Um, I mean, you really have to research what it is you're going into. If you're doing architecture, you want a, a tripod. That the most important thing is a tripod that does incremental movements. Right. You know, if you're and a tilt shift lens and yeah, absolutely. You know, you the thing about right now is that there's a million different facets for what you could possibly want to do. So once you figure out what it is you want to do, buy, buy the most specific gear to that. I mean, and right down to um you know a a car i mean make sure that you have a car that that can take a chair because (laughs) you're going to be picking up chairs and plants for the rest of your life (laughs) uh it's just a fact you make sure you can fit a 12 foot piece of paper in there absolutely so uh without breaking the bank uh get yourself a second hand toyota (laughs) and uh, call it a day lenses people always say like glass is your long-term investment that's what's going to last forever I've actually found that that recently that wasn't true. Same. Um, I think it's partly because we went through a lens revolution lately. Everything got way better. Uh, we were just tolerating a certain level of quality, Mediocrity. especially in the film days. And we didn't notice uh, for some reason once we switched to digital until um, – not that they were the first to have a sharp lens. But I noticed when Sigma released their art series and all of a sudden you – understood how sharp sharp could be oh 1.4 can be completely sharp 
Absolutely. It doesn't need to look soft and mushy with chromatic aberration. And uh, now there's a new, there's like a new standard of here's how good it can look. So I, I, I like we've been selling a, a few of our older lenses because a lot of the Canon stuff was designed in the 90s and then just right. stuck around. That's funny that you say that. I just last week sold all of my Canon glass in mm. one shot. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm on the Zeiss train, which is probably pretty close to the to the Sigma train where, you know, at F2, you're kind of like, wow, this, I, ca- I can't believe that this much is in focus mm-hmm. and, and it looks this good. So, I mean, I, I, I'm with you on that. I mean, I used to buy the $3,000 pieces and now I'm, you know, I mean, I, uh, as we were talking about yesterday, F1.8 is good enough so right. i don't need to buy the one four or the one two or the one oh or whatever the latest and greatest is as long as i've got something that feels good in my hand and it's tests out sharp mm-hmm. through through the range i mean that's what i feel is important and i feel like i i've i purchased now for the mindset that i'll probably get rid of it in three or four years right. the only things that have really proven to be worth like put the the serious money down and this is for us this may not work the same for everybody but is your standard zoom most of all. Absolutely. Whatever yeah. the zoom ranges you're in all the time. So yeah. for us, 24 to 70 to 8, you were saying you have the 24 70 F4? Yeah, for the Sony. Yeah. Just make sure that you're getting one that is right. what you don't cheap. That's the place not to cheap out. Well, yes and no. I mean, so for example. Although you did cheap out. Yeah, I did cheap out. But I mean, you know, I mean, just on that note, could you have gotten away with the F4? Um, for your. Not us, no. We use the 2.8. We for sure use Yeah, it. fair enough. Okay, yeah. fair enough. Um, I would say though that, I mean, like I said, I've just learned to cheat it when I need to. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that the, the, you are absolutely right. I mean, it's the one, it's the, you know, you can go and shoot a landscape and a portrait, uh, within one second of each other, um, with the same lens. And that's pretty important commercially. Absolutely. And having the speed behind it is great too. I just, well, but for example, if you go cheap with your primes, a cheap 50 will look better than a cheap zoom. Absolutely. Right. So right. Absolutely. Especially the really cheap zooms are just barely ever worth it. Like you have to, right. I don't know who they're worth it for really. Well, those are, these are, these are now kit lenses, right? Yeah. Like yeah. this is what comes free with a $600 you can, camera. You can still spend like a thousand dollars on some of these bad lenses. Like there's some True. not good expensive lenses out there too. I don't name any names, but um, right. just make sure the one, make sure your zoom is half decent. <laughs> uh, is, is that it for gear? Um, yeah, and I mean, aside from the obvious, I mean, I think computer, it's computer. You need a computer. Uh, you need a computer, but I think it's I think it's also important to have um, a full frame camera um, okay. to get to get the most out of. I mean, okay, well, I could, I could push back on that a little bit. Okay, just that I don't know. I don't know if you need one. Okay, fair enough. Well, <laughs> it, th- but depending on what, absolutely depending on what you do, right? Um, I think with people, it's important for one working distance uh, from your subject and two. Um, you know, just I'm not going to say anything about quality of files, but uh, I feel like you will inevitably end up end up with a full frame camera. So if <laughs> you can uh, do it, the because then that yeah. glass becomes more user friendly. The thing right. about I would have a not full frame camera as a backup or as a vlog machine or a video camera or something like that. But I think as a stills camera, you know, if you can afford it, yeah. So that's actually that's one place that it, it's true is uh, in terms of noise. So. Uh, in video, it's more common to have smaller sensors and it'd be fine because the noise doesn't show up as much. You're right. looking at a smaller image. You you see less of it. And you're already, if you need to stretch the detail, you're usually breaking the image because it's compressed. 
instead of because of the noise. Whereas in stills, if you're shooting raw, all that noise can start to show up really quick as you move sliders around. So having higher ISO performance, or better high ISO performance is more important in stills than in video, I think. And because in video, you're usually shooting at slower shutter speeds. So a lot of the time you have to get to, you know, I was saying earlier, 200 or 250th of a second in, in stills, but in video, you're usually shooting at 150th or one Right. Because it's moving, fifth. you can have a little, you've got some grace. Yeah. So on that note, just a question for you. I mean, I don't really have. I don't. I don't own any not full frame cameras. Is the ISO performance of a of a not full frame camera like an APS C or a Micro Four Thirds as good as a a thirty five millimeter sensor these days? Uh, so I don't really know. I don't own. <laughs> yeah. I don't own APS C cameras. The C two hundred is a super thirty five, but it's all video, so it's not a great right. reference point. Um, but yeah, for stills, things that I've seen. I don't know. People are going to write it if I try to guess. I th- I think that it's worse in right. many cases, and definitely when it comes to micro right. four thirds. Yeah, and I think there's something to be said about. Um, you see, it's bigger pixels help. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The the bigger the pixel, the smoother the information. That's always held true. Um, maybe that somebody will change that uh, technology one day, uh, but not as of right now. And I and I think as far as an etiquette thing and showing up on set with a camera that looks real is also. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, you, no, you, I mean, if you're tethering and you're well, so are you are you finding that to be an issue now that you're on a much smaller camera? At first, I did, but you know what's funny about that is um, old school I, clients yours are walking away because they're like, "Oh, Jason has a small camera." <laughs> so it it was more so um, it was more so interesting when it first came out. People are like, "Oh, what is that?" And then um, I had a couple of clients come from Toronto and said, okay, well, we're only accepting a Hasselblad or, um, or the, the Sony A7R files at the moment. So you need one of those two standards to work <laughs> yeah. with us. Interesting, and, though, that's, they're on the same list. Yeah. yeah, they were, though, because it was at, at that point the highest res- resolution, which was also, I think, in the Nikons at the same time as well. Um, yeah, the D810. Or- yeah, or whatever that was at the time. But um, you know, nowadays uh, I beef it up a little bit. I've got a bottom plate that makes it a little, little, little bit bigger. I've got a, a bracket on the side of it that holds a tether cable in um, for those scenarios, and it looks mm-hmm. it looks legitimate. It's um, I mean, the standard now is it used to be the S series or the X series for Canons, and if you didn't have a camera with a built-in grip in it, you weren't nothing, you know. Mm-hmm. And now um, everything's gotten smaller again, which is. Which is which is nice because people like to travel with their yeah. stuff. I mean, I think five Ds. I know when five Ds came on the market, they were very much considered prosumer. Right. They were not like professional, professional cameras. Yeah, you couldn't register it with Canon as a professional <laughs> yeah, so camera. Officially, according to Canon, it wasn't professional. Right. That's just not the case anymore. I mean, five Ds are. Everywhere. They've added it to the list and they've put an upgraded shutter on it. Um, so I mean, I can. We still burnt stars out. So <laughs> I personally can attest to taking a one DS to over a million frames. Wow. Uh, you know, over a six-year period yeah. and buying it secondhand. I mean, any of these uh, Canons, at least I'm sure others too, but Canons we've both seen go way over. Like ours went right. way past the rating, but it's still yeah, and it and, didn't get to a million. But you know, at the end of the day, it's just such an. Ex- inexpensive repair i mean i think a shutterbox is five or seven hundred dollars and if you look at the the amount you've used it times you know what you've charged out for it uh, at the end of the day it's it's really like getting you know a a pair of new tires i gotta say very nice thing from canon is that when we sent ours in they also replaced a lot of the body as well just like kind of the worn out parts of the body they're getting a little smooth they were they're pretty good about that if you get the cps they'll treat you nicely and 
you know, if they're like, oh, we've got an extra screen, I've had them throw a screen in before where you're just like, oh, that's, oh, that's <laughs> yeah, amazing. That's amazing bonus. Um, all right. Well, I'm going to hit a few more of these questions okay. so we don't run out of time. Uh, the next one's from Fuzan Alam. Uh, what's the best way, I'm sorry for not pronouncing your name well, um, but what's the best way to help clients understand that artists should be paid for their work? This, mm. is, this is a forever yeah. question. This is a big question. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's, that's, that's no, so no, loaded, it's, yeah. it's hard. I, I mean, a lot of it, okay, to, to start with, there are different types of clients that um, the clients that you need to be the person to convince them of that, uh, you want to aspire to move away from those clients. Because like, that's, those clients will always be out there and they're always going to be hard to work with. Absolutely. Um, and so often they fall into the realm of small businesses or like local clients where they only need to hire a photographer once every few years, you know, uh, restaurants might be an example. They only have one location. They only need, they they got photos when they opened and now it's 10 years later and they're going to get some new ones. Uh, they aren't doing this regularly. They haven't built up any sort of expectations or knowledge about what prices should be. You will always have a challenge convincing them that this is really the rate that you always charge and people uh, pay it and uh, that they don't deserve a special discount. And then there is another type of client that is working with photographers regularly. So, uh, you know, in the, in the fashion world, most bigger brands like have some basic, they have to keep getting photos. Absolutely. They are paying other photographers all the time and they should have some kind of understanding that this is kind of what a rate is. And, you don't have to argue with them as much. And that is the kind of client you want to aim for. Not fashion specifically. I'm just saying people that... Absolutely. And I think that this goes to say that um, you should also know what you're good at and what your skill set is and what sets you apart from whoever else might be hiring or whoever else they might be hiring. I mean, are you a good retoucher? Are you the person that's to hire for food and why? I mean, I think you have to look at what it is you're doing and and sort of cater your, you know, the great thing about now is that you can reach out and say, hey, I'd love to work with you or whatever. Um, people, people are pretty responsive if you're on the same page um, as far as your work and what you're doing. I think that um, it's really important to just know what, what makes your skill set different than other people's or, you know, what, what's going to set you apart. I think this is, like Tyler said, one of those questions that, you know, will be till the end of day. And if somebody's nickel and diming you and you've given them an absolute, you know, low price, then you're never going to get that client yeah. up. I mean, I would just say a service like photographers to other photographers, let's all band together. Don't make it easy for people to nickel and dime you. Because they need to, if they decide like, oh, you're too expensive, I'm going to go to the next person. Um, Hopefully that next person also quotes them a similar rate and says like, no, this is the rate and it's going to cost you this much. Um, It's it's part of the challenge of the industry is like as people undercut each other and just keep doing things for cheaper and cheaper, that's what allows these clients to continue lowering their price expectations is that somebody will do it for a lower rate. And there's always somebody new out there and you can't fault them for being less than you because, well, they don't have 10 years experience or 15 years experience. So, I mean, of course, somebody that's getting their first job is going to be cheaper than you are, you would hope. But at the same time, you don't want to be undercut. And then it's this vicious circle of, Mm -hmm. well, how do you get your prices up and how do you get to that point? So spend some time on set. (laughs) (laughs) Figure it out what it it is you do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of it's just you, you have to you have to be worth that money um, and also be aware of what kinds of clients 
will have the most to gain from having good photos because certain types of clients can't make a lot of money off it. Like they won't see a huge return, whether the photos right. are mediocre or great. Right. And, um, and, and that's a tough one too. Like I, f- I find return on investment very hard unless you've got somebody tracking page three of whatever flyer or website or, you know, can attribute actual sales to photography. I mean, for clothing, it just it just has to be. You have to you have got has four. To be good. You, well, yeah, it has to be good, and you have to do it so yeah. often. And you can look at another example, like maybe for shooting portraits for the local dentist down the street. It doesn't really matter how good their photos. Like they should have good photos, right? But if they're bad, they'll probably have a relatively similar amount of business. So that's somebody you're going to have a hard time bumping the price up, right? But at the same time, you have to look. These are you know, five dentists sharing an office, don't give it, don't give it away. I mean, yeah. if they come to you and say, okay, well, we, we came to you because it was going to be $500. Well, you have to explain to them that you've had two meetings with them beforehand. You have to explain to them that you're going to spend a day shooting it. You're going to have to explain to them that it's going to take a day to edit it, um, get them selects. And then they're going to come back and say, well, we, you know, I really, I really don't like my shirt in this one. Can you make it blue or whatever that request is? So it, so often a one-day job, you also have to realize is often three to five days. Yeah, and try to find some peers in your market where you can discuss prices a bit. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I know everybody's not equally open with what they charge, um, but some amount of common knowledge of like, you know, this is what is happening in your market, in your city. Um, it's really good for people to have some awareness of that and not be too closed off because otherwise, if everybody's blind um, – Nobody the, nobody wins. The client, well, I mean, we want the client to win, yeah. but the client gets the favorable. And person. on that note, I mean, do, reaching out to somebody to say, hey, um, I'm new and I'm quoting on something and I don't want to undercut other people in this industry is always going to get you a favorable answer from another photographer. Um, I've, well, I would find it pretty unlikely that somebody's going to say, hey, well, you know, don't, what, you know, <laughs> they give you a hard time about that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, I got another one from Tyler Hopper. File, organiz- file organization and an overview of the workflow from camera to editing to final image. And that's too too long to really go over, but I think a few things that you need to know about. So again, things to Google, things to research. Absolutely. Um, you know, starting with be aware of what proper backup means, what it really means to have your files be secure and have enough copies of them. and Redundancy. Yeah, and keeping them in different locations. And, um, you know, what... What should a client be able to expect from you in terms of file security? That's a good thing to know. Um, well, me personally, I think that I hold on to things for four years. Um, which do you tell the client this? No, but it's just what I do. Um, and I actually hold on to things forever. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, no clients listening. Right, right, right. But if somebody comes to me after that time period saying, hey, then I'll charge for it. If somebody says, hey, in a year and a half, um, you know, there was this other interior we were thinking about you know, getting this or whatever the side shot was or whatever that might be, you're going to get requests all the time. People are going to come back and it might be not often, but it'll be often enough that it'll probably pay for itself. And right now, hard drives are so inexpensive that you can get a six terabyte regular, three and a half for, you know, a couple hundred bucks. And if you need to make two copies or three or five or whatever that number is, um, just make sure you've got two at minimum. Well, and, yeah, we just for reference, we hold on to everything forever. Not because there's really a decision being made, but it's also like if we're going to delete it at some point, that means every year we have to go back four years and go through everything. And like, oh, this right. will delete, this will keep. It's like, 
Whatever, and, let's just buy another drive. And yeah, at the end of it all, I mean, you've got some personal work in there too, probably, and you've got some things yeah, totally. that you that you're proud of or whatever. So, I think that um, it's just a matter of figuring out what workflow works for you. There are the thing about photography is there's a thousand ways to get to the same end, and as long as you're following the rules, which is redundancy, and if redundancy um, it means one uh, one place, two places at once, and then one other copy somewhere else, I think. Another part of workflow is the software that you choose. Correct. Which was a topic we've talked about offline a bunch lately. Uh, your Capture One, I'm still Lightroom. Correct. Um, what should what should the listener choose? <laughs> uh, and why? You know, uh, obviously, again, it's like different situations. Um, why would you choose Capture One? You defend Capture One. Okay, so Capture One is the only thing I've ever seen in a professional studio. So it just seemed to be what I adapt. It's also adapted to. It's also what I used um, in school. If you go and you work for somebody that works commercially in a bigger city, that's you know a, a, a production person, you're going to see Capture One. Um, I would say that from an from. Um, it's, it, I used to use. I'm not going to say anything bad about Lightroom, but uh, it, it used to be that it was it was what came free with the Adobe Suite, so that's what what people used. But now it's got a huger following as far as presets and and w- what's possible within that. So you know, I mean, it, it's it's the difference. I think at the end of the day between Canon and Nikon, I, I would highly recommend somebody trying both of them and seeing what works for them. I mean, it is a fact that Lightroom is going to run a little bit slower based on the way it. It it works. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a it's a prettier program, um, but Capture One is a no nonsense tether machine. If you need to be hooked up to a computer, uh, Capture One is your best friend. If you are a person that shoots the card, wants to come home and look at something in a gallery style sense, Lightroom's probably uh, your best friend. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's different styles. It's yeah. two different things, and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with using both of them because I've recently gone to Lightroom just to say, okay, well. Presets. Talk to me. Presets. What's going on? What, what what are people knowing here that I'm not seeing? But at the end of the day, it's you know people are just moving around sliders to get what they want, and both of the softwares can probably achieve a very similar look at the end. Yeah, when you look at a photo, you don't know what was taken on which. Right, and if you look at the cost of it, I mean, um, you know, your your Lightroom's going to come with your subscription, which everybody now has. And well, not uh, everybody. I mean, there's lots of people that don't, haven't made this decision yet. There's right, a new true, photographer. True, true, day. true, true. But you would have bought some sort of photo editing software, and if you haven't, you will, right? I mean, you might not get the whole suite. I don't know what Photoshop is you worth. You can do off. a Photoshop and Lightroom suite. Yeah, and that's that's probably not too expensive. It's yeah. probably twenty dollars or eighteen, whatever yeah, that and number then, is. And then Capture One's thirty a month. Yeah, and I, if you do the monthly, right? Thing or so I've purchased that, right? Capture One, and the only thing annoying about Capture One is every time you get a new camera your Capture One is going to be outdated and you'll have to buy Capture One again, which is... Oh, wait, 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 sorry. Because they don't update the camera profiles to the current version, so you have to wait for version 13 to... Yeah, so for example, with the a7 III, I had to upgrade to 11 mm-hmm. uh, because 10 didn't support it. So, I mean, they could have given you an update at that time, but uh, once you've bought it, uh, the upgrade price is only $80. So, And that happens every three years. Right. So let's say I've done it. A couple of times. Yeah. So, and I'll I'll totally agree with that. I see that same thing of on on any real set, like s- substantial set where there's a budget going on and the the mile models are getting paid. Um, Capture One is typically what's being used. 
Um, but, uh, you know, Lightroom is still very common in more of the, I'd say more of the events world and definitely in the more like pro amateur or hobbyist area. But I Um, I would say it's, it's definitely moved into the pro market as well. I mean, I know large companies that use Lightroom exclusively and and I was sort of blown away to see that, but, um, it's found its place and people, you know, people have made it work. And I think it, it, it really depends on whether you're a card shooter or a tethered shooter. Well, I, I think I, that's I'm, actually, there are just processing things that I'm frustrated about with Lightroom too. Uh, for, okay, first I'll try to defend Lightroom a little bit or just say why it's good. I mean, Adobe's also moving faster with things like cloud services, syncing your photos between your phone and your uh, computer, uh, you know, cloud backup stuff. Um, if that's something that interests you, like that, that can be pretty cool, you know, that you can dump everything on your computer and edit it on your iPad. So that, that typically, to me, that's less of a professional workflow because as the volume increases, it's hard to sync things online. So we can never sync our photos. We have too many photos. Yeah, absolutely. But if you're more of a hobbyist, then it, 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 it's pretty sweet to be able to have access to your stuff anywhere you go. Right. Um, yeah, absolutely. I imagine, but I don't have it. So. <laughs> you know, it's I've been using this thing, and you had asked me this yesterday, actually, and I kind of drew a blank, but it's uh, it's called ChronoSync. Yeah, and, that's, that's what we used to. Yeah, so I mean, that's how you all tether and shoot a backup sort of thing. Um, um, but, okay, so the things that really drive me crazy about Lightroom and the reasons that I keep thinking about Capture One, outside of tethering, which it's, it wins that award, um, but uh, one thing is like layers, that you can do where you can do you can do brushes and gradient masks and stuff in uh, Lightroom, but there's a limited amount of sliders that you can apply to that. So for example, you couldn't have HSL adjustments or a tone curve on an additional layer. You can only use their contrast or exposure sliders. Um, whereas in uh, Capture One, everything can be on that other layer. You could have a whole another preset. I, I think you can have like a style on that yeah. layer. You can have all of your adjustments stacked and then adjust the opacity of all those things. How HSL works, this might be the biggest one. Um, so you can define what, here's what red is. Red is from this level of orange to this level of purple. And it's, right. I can make it wider or narrower and then move it within that. And I can only apply that to the face of my subject. It has a skin tone tool where you use an eyedropper and you say, this is the skin in the color, or sorry, skin in the photo. And now I'm going to adjust the luminance of just the skin because I've already predefined it. That is not happening in Lightroom at all. It's They're like, here's orange. Right. Your background is right. orange too? Too bad. Right. No control. And and I and I can't speak to that fully. I've tried it, um, but I have figured out my own methods of that in Photoshop. So Capture One for me is merely process, um, oh, okay. get so, it within range. Yeah, we do more color in Lightroom. So. And, and pull it out. Yeah, so... Right. You, Color in Lightroom, and I, and I and the same same for me. I'll do color for sure, but if I need to go and uh, adjust a, a a dead hand or something that's gray on the fall off zone of of light, um, that happens in Photoshop for me. What's a dead hand? I mean, this is a thing that took me. This is one of those things that took me too long to to kind of start to understand. So it's a good tip for everybody. Okay, well, there's there's several things that can create a dead hand. One in a female circulation is they have less circulation in their hands. So you often see models or people subject uh, holding their hands up between shots to keep the circulation going. Um, so so that when you um, are looking at the photo, you don't have like this perfectly makeup face and then um, either a gray or a green or a blue yeah, hand. Yeah. 
Um, and that can also happen because there's not a life, enough light down there. If you're shooting a three-quarter and the hand happens to be in it, um, there's the fall-off at the bottom can make that hand or bottom part of an arm look gray. Yeah. Or something I'll see in natural lighting as well is that the, the face and even arms can be warmer. And then it, let's say she's or she or he is wearing shorts or a skirt, right. the legs start to turn really cool. Like right. the, your, your shadow, there's less light coming. Just however the light is falling at the bottom, they cool down a lot. So you have to warm up, you target just their legs. Right. And especially and, you have to consider too if somebody's wearing makeup. I mean, the, right. the difference between the face, the neck, uh, the hands, and the legs, like literally can be seven different shades and uh, you have to sort that out. And I think that um, in Capture One, the software is pretty good, but I still find myself making adjustments in Photoshop after yeah, the fact. Yeah, you have to. Absolutely. Jason, thanks. Absolutely. Where do Thank people you. find you? You're not like a big social media guy. Where, no. where, so what do people look at? Oh, um, jangphoto.com. Cool. Links in show notes. Thanks again for coming. Thanks. Thanks.